recreational pickleball is going to continue to grow. I think that that a real important part of that growth, besides the people that are either aging out of tennis or the people that are discovering pickleball because they're, the learning curve is simple, I think if, if it's really going to be uh, have the staying power that we all want it to have, I think we need to take an approach like we did back in the day with the Tennis Industry Council. Welcome back to the future of pickleball. You guys know I like to bring in the, the movers and shakers, people that are doing stuff in the sport. I've got a beautiful guest today, and I mean beautiful. This guy's the real deal. This is Ian Hamilton. I want to welcome you, buddy. Thank you. Nice to be here. You know, it's been, it's been interesting. We had our one Zoom call conversation some months ago, kind of got to know each other a little bit. I love what you're doing in the sports camp world. But before we get into that, would you give us a little bit of an idea of what your background is? You've got a pretty, pretty interesting history. Yeah, I, I, I spent 17 years at Nike in the uh, tennis sports marketing side of business, um, you know, basically signing athletes, integrating them into the company, making sure that we're getting the benefit of the endorsement deal. But it was a, it was a great time to be at Nike. It, and it was um, the early years when we as sports marketing people were expected to be entrepreneurial. And um, I would say it's more operational today. Certainly. But I think that's a function of size, and every company gets to that point. But Now, I, I believe you brought a guy named Agassi into the I game, did, didn't you? I did, ironically, yes. That uh, had to be kind of a cool experience. Tell us about that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, I first, I think one of the first uh, uh, people I signed, I remember, um, you know, going over to Phil Knight's office back in the day with a VCR under my arm and three of <laughs> Nick Politeri's books. Uh -huh. And I plugged in the VCR and I showed Phil this tape and I said, we got to sign this guy because everybody who's anybody in tennis goes through the Nick Politeri Tennis Academy. Yes. So that was where I met Andre because Andre was at the academy at that time. Sure. And I just knew at the time after watching him and seeing him and seeing his personality and what he was all about, I told him, I said, Andre, you're a Nike athlete, and when you turn pro, you give me a call, and we're going to make it work. And, and uh, that's what eventually happened. And actually, he tells the story in the book. So uh, it's there for Very nice. anybody that wants to see it. You know, it. one of the things that, that, that I think our viewers enjoy is hearing, I've had a number of people on who really have history in the sports and at the high levels. When you were signing athletes for Nike in the day, Guide us a little bit. What was that process like? Well, it, you, the main thing was we looked for athletes that, um, you, you know, the idea was to make the emotional connection between the athlete and the consumer. Mm -hmm. So we were looking for uh, athletes that obviously were talented, but that had character and, and possibly even style, like Andre had style. Had style. You know, and believe it or not, people like Pete Sampras and Jim Courier, they didn't start out with style, but we gave them style. Yeah. And um, that's how it worked to sort of make the connection. And we marketed everybody differently and created different product lines around them. And it was, it was fun. It was really a lot of fun. And we went out of our way to make the athletes feel like they were a part of a family as opposed sure. to, as Phil Knight used to always say, we want their heart and soul, not just their feet. Yeah. So yeah. we treated the athletes with respect. We treated them like they were part of a family. And they all felt like we were all on the same team, which was very cool. In, in, terrific. You know, now... 
I don't know your history with pickleball. How did you find out about pickleball? When did it resonate with you? So it, it, it you know, as, as, as time went on, I started doing more and more with U.S. sports camps, particularly after I, I, I left Nike. But, you know, I, I spent my four summers of college working at the Tahoe Tennis Camp, which was the first four years of U.S. sports camps in existence. Uh -huh. So that's how I got started with U.S. sports. So I, I, when, it, when it came time to sort of integrate U.S. sports into Nike, then um, we, I, th that was in 1994, actually. So after I left Nike and I started doing more and more with U.S. sports camps, um, I started making the case to the folks at, to, you know, to the rest of our team at U.S. sports camps and even to, to the people at Nike in sports marketing that pickleball is growing, it's popular, it, it may be an adult sport at the moment, but adults buy Nike stuff as well. And I had actually gone to the Nationals. I, I went down to the Nationals at, at Indian Wells. Okay. And this was probably a year or two before COVID. And uh, I remember sending pictures around to everybody at U.S. sports camps yeah. of the Wednesday at 11 o'clock session where the stands in the stadium were full. Yes. And yeah. I said, there's something going on here. So it took me about another year or two to convince everybody, the leadership team at U.S. sports camps, we need to be in the pickleball business as well as Nike, that, that we should be in the pickleball camp business. And uh, eventually everybody said, yeah, it's the right thing to do. So Nike pickleball camps were born. And that's how the I whole see. thing so got started. So that's where that began. That's how the whole thing got started was um, you know, right after the Nationals at Indian Wells. And we finally made the decision that it was the right thing to do. So we've been, we're going into our third year this year of running Nike pickleball camps. Very nice, very nice. Um, you know, that kind of brings us to a natural point. So, so in the four years, approximately four years, when you were doing this at Nationals, what's been your vision of what's happened in the ensuing four years? So I, I, I think, as you know, a lot has happened, right? I mean, it's definitely a boom. I think COVID helped a lot of outdoor sports, not the least of which was pickleball and tennis, because they, you could play them outdoors. But I think that, that the interest in the sport and, and the growth of the sport has continued. There's no, the, the learning curve is simple. The, it's very social. You don't have to build a court. You can put the courts on top of tennis courts. Court, uh, tennis clubs have learned to coexist with, with, with pickleball, and I think that's been good for everybody. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the, un, I don't know if you want me to mention Padel, but I, I think the difference. Uh, no, actually, what I'm really looking for from you is I really want your industry expertise, where you feel the world is moving. I, I think the world is moving with recreational pickleball, I think that recreational pickleball is going to continue to grow. I think that that a real important part of that growth, besides the people that are either aging out of tennis or the people that are discovering pickleball because they're, the learning curve is simple, mm -hmm. I think if, if it's really going to be uh, have the staying power that we all want it to have, I think we need to take an approach like we did back in the day with the Tennis Industry Council. I was on the original Tennis Industry Council where the whole idea was to get tennis into high schools mm -hmm. and make sure that high schools were teaching the sport. And I think you got, we've got to get kids playing. We've got to get, get junior high school kids. We have to have high school tennis or high school pickleball, which will lead to college pickleball. And then parents will allow their kids and encourage their kids to play high school pickleball 
because there's an opportunity to get a college scholarship. Now, when you talk about that in the day with tennis, what was being done that you think could be done in, in pickleball to have similar experiences? I think on the, on the recreational side, and in particular at, the, at high schools and junior high schools, teaching PE teachers how to teach pickleball. Uh, there, there were a lot of tools that were, were produced back then when the tennis boom was going on that the industry supported to teach PE teachers how to, how to teach pickleball. Imagine a high school that has eight tennis courts okay, that are completely unused. You turn those into 16 pickleball courts. Now an entire PE class sure. can be on the court playing because you know now you got 16 courts you got the whole class everybody's playing everybody's rallying again the learning curve is non-existent right you pick up the paddle and you start rallying i think those are the types of things that need to be focused on to bring the kids into the sport we're looking at doing kids camps and um i think that it, it just needs to be embraced at that level that i think will have a lot to do with the staying power of the sport but I do believe that the recreational side of the sport is gonna continue. I think on the professional side, um, I really don't see how um, the game, the sport can support three professional tours. <laughs> I think if you look at the NFL, you look at, you look at the NBA, you know, NFL with the AFL. Um, you look at um, the NBA with the ABA. You look at Major League Baseball, convert every one of those leagues that had upstart tours or leagues, the ATP with the WCT tour. I mm -hmm. mean, Lamar Hunt was behind both of those. He was behind WCT and he was, he was behind the AFL. They ended up merging and look at what, the, what, what they've done now. They focused their effort, one governing body, one entity, with the with the mission of being growing the sport and the messaging to the consumer is crystal clear about about what's going on and i just i think that pickleball if the pro side of the game is going to continue to flourish which will then trickle down to the kids mm -hmm. because then the kids are focused and in, 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 instead of being fragmented into three different tours where when they turn on the tv and they watch professional pickleball they don't know what tour it is. They don't know who it is, what it is. Is this a team event? Is this an individual, individual event? You gotta, you gotta focus the consumer's mind so they understand what they're seeing and they understand what's going on. Then they aspire to play the game. Cool. And I think at the pro level, I think that's really important. Now, now given that description, and we all, all of us that live in the pickleball space, you know, are all around this stuff, do, do you see a difference between the team approach that MLP is doing and what PPA is doing, or do you see them all as one pro entity? I think right now it's probably confusing because I look at it through the mind's eye of the consumer. Mm -hmm. Okay, So if you turn on whatever network it is you're turned on to watch pickleball and you're seeing singles, doubles, or mixed, you don't know if it's a team event really or if it's a APP or PPA mm -hmm. event. Right. So that's the that's the tough part i believe in the mind's eye of the consumer look what tennis did at the super series events in the majors they changed the color of the court so that when the when the consumer turns on the tv and they see that different colored court they know it's a big event and they know it's a major as opposed to one of the other events i i just think that the energy and the effort's got to get focused on one tour while the boom is going on yeah 
so that you can capture those fans that are watching the sport while the boom is going on. You don't want to lose them. You want to keep them in the sport and so that they understand everything that's happening. Yeah, no, I, I, think, I think you're making a good point. And a lot of us in the sport have talked a lot about how this thing will evolve and how it's going to roll itself out. I've wondered if the APP doesn't actually sort of become the minor leagues and it's a place where the entree can, players can come in at a lower level. Um, it, it's been interesting. I've been around this game now for over a decade. And of course, the change have just been yeah. monumental. Yeah. But, but I sort of feel like we're still... We're still figuring it out ourselves. Absolutely. And, uh, and uh, I've wondered if we aren't going to see some major um, uh, financial group come in and say, hey, we know how to do this. Yep. Please step out of our way and, uh, and let's but, go. But, you know, look at the live tour in golf. Good example. Okay, so money just doesn't always solve the problem. Sure. Okay, so it, it, it takes leadership. It takes a focus. And it takes, you know, one voice coming, coming from either the commissioner level. I mean, I, it's, I spent time, I was the commissioner of the Pro Bowlers Tour for several years. And the whole idea was to get the sport. The sport had faded from existence. And we put it back on ESPN. We got it. It was prime time running up against the NFL on Sundays live, 20 straight tour stops. But we had a focused mission we had a focused message and that was to get on the air as fast as we could after espn handed us the show right from the from nfl primetime and the idea was not to lose the audience but the mission was consistent diversify and dimensionalize the players mm -hmm. have a consistent schedule and let the fans know where we were and when they were going to watch the show on tv i think the same thing needs to happen in pickleball because and i've said this a million times i call it the wild wild west the Wild Wild West has got a, probably a few more years left in it. And if we don't catch lightning in a bottle now, it's, you know, so if the APP is meant to be the minor league tour or however it's set up, then do it and get the message out there. Tell the consumers, have a plan for how it's going to go. You know, when, when you talk about having been uh, involved in the early stages of, of tennis or bowling, the other, these other sports that you've been around, uh, was there any secret sauce that was was common as to how they got organized or how it came together? Or was it the National Leadership Organization or the association that did it? How did it come together fluidly? I think you've got I, I think, you, again, I mentioned the Tennis Industry Council. The whole idea of the Tennis Industry Council back in the day when it was set up was that everybody came together and joined hands and came sure. up with a common mission. It was agents, it was television, it was tournament directors, it was players, it was media, it was advertising. Everybody that was involved and involved and around the sport came together at, at the initial meeting, which was, at the, I'll never forget, it was at the Colony Beach Resort in, in, in Florida. And it was two days of joining hands to make sure the tennis continued to grow the way it was growing and that kids got involved and that high school tennis yeah. and that college tennis got promoted and that the pro tour was solid and that, that, you know, again, the messaging was consistent and the game got promoted so that there was this aspirational model at the top that trickled down to the bottom of the pyramid and at the bottom of the pyramid were the kids you were, or the kids I mean, were that you were trying to bring into the game sure. so that they worked their way up through the pyramid. 
Yeah, I've been very involved in youth in pickleball on a number of different efforts trying to make things go. And it really comes from the standpoint that every time I've been around a group of kids getting their first opportunity to put a paddle in their hand, it's amazing yeah. the fun and the ease and the quickness. And I came from a lifetime in tennis. I yeah. know what it took to get a kid to become a poor tennis player yeah. was a long, hard well, struggle. Well, then you, you know how difficult the learning curve is in tennis. I taught tennis for years when I came out of college. And that, again, that's how I got started with U.S. sports camps at our, at our camps, mm -hmm. uh, teaching and running those camps at Lake Tahoe. That I know how difficult it is to, to get started in tennis. To, to be able to rally and be able to play a point. Right. The beauty of pickleball is that that part of it doesn't exist. You're, the learning curve doesn't exist. It's, it's immediate success. It's, it's, it's rallies right off the bat. You can play points and people have fun. And then they're going to come back. Yeah, no, that is, that is so true. You know, one of the things that I want to explore just a little bit, but I want to come back to the pro game okay. and your observations on the current pro players in the pro game. But before we do that, guide me a little bit as to what you're doing with your sports camps, where I believe you began with adult uh, sessions. And, and where are you? Where is that going for you? And where yeah. do you think youth will go for you? So, so as I said, Nike pickleball camps, we're in the third year of existence. And, and, and we, um, you know, U.S. Sports Camps has been in business since 1976. And, and the model is that we find great coaches that have access to great facilities that know how to run a great camp. Yep. And the vast majority of our camp directors are college coaches. So what U.S. Sports Camps does is we provide the back-end services for those coaches so that all they have to do is show up and do what they do best, which is to teach. Yep. So that said, we took that model and we moved that model over to Pickleball. So we create revenue streams for the coaches by running the camps for them. We, again, we do all the back-end stuff. We have a registration system. We do marketing, advertising, staff uniforms, uh, camp T-shirts. Uh, we provide all, all the product that's, that's needed to run the camp for the directors. And the directors love it because, again, it frees them up to just do what they do best. So our job now is to find pickleball pros that know how to teach the sport, that know what they're doing, people like DJ Howard, who we work with and who runs camps for us, and um, we need more of them. And you know, our strategy and, and you know, what we, we tell each other when we talk about it is that um, whether the boom continues or not, our goal is to be out there doing what we do best, and that's running great pickleball camps. So it, when you talk about youth, it, is, are your youth pieces done during what would be summer vacation? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. And as you know, I mean, the young audience is just now coming into the sport. Right. So we are trying to run and targeting kids' camps. Um, I also run our, our nonprofit called the Play Without Limits Project, and it's a scholarship program mm -hmm. that we have uh, through U.S. sports camps and through uh, a lot of our uh, brand partnerships get involved. And I've, I, what I want to start doing is reaching out to underserved communities of kids and putting on pickleball pop-up camps where we can get those kids exposed to it and get them started in the sport. And it, it, it's, uh, what we've done so far with Play Without Limits is great, but I think if we, can, if we can weave pickleball into there with some of those kids, I think it's a great sort of aspirational, inspirational opportunity for those kids to get moving, get involved great. in sport, and, and be athletic, and then teach them a sport that they might, may want to continue playing. 
Yeah, I tell you, I, that's really exciting to hear. Um, I'll tell you, I'll be able to put you together with a couple of the major cities in America that already have underserved youth pickleball startups. Right. And I'm sure right. they would appreciate any yeah. quality of help and, and assistance that they could get. Yep. And I think we can all work together on that stuff. I mean, the we whole idea be. with nonprofit and dealing with kids is it's, you know, everybody, it should be all hands on deck in the, there because we're all trying to do what's best for those kids. Yeah, I, I, uh, with what I do, and, and we're, we're trying to get ready to launch a major youth team program for next year, but the whole goal of it is, is it really should be, it should be neutrality zone for yep. everybody. Yep. Go, this is the future of the sport. This is where our ultimate numbers will come from. And, and we're all a little frustrated with some of the, the parochialism and, yep. uh, you know, yep. it's about me, it's about me that we see in the sport. But I do think that youth could be the place that we sort of set down all of the our, our individual issues and let's drive youth sports because we will all benefit. That pie will get so big so fast. And I think, to your point, we have to get kids involved. We don't want pickleball to go the way of racquetball. Right. And I think the problem with racquetball as a sport at the time was it was really adults and it was predominantly men. And it, it didn't trickle down to the kids and it didn't get kids involved at the junior high and high school level. So therefore it didn't exist at the college level. Right. So it went away. Yep. And we just have to avoid that happening. And the way to do that is you get the next generation of kids coming through. As yep. I said, the, the, most of the tennis clubs, have, everybody's learned to coexist, right? Because the, the, the tennis clubs have learned that either you can let the, the, the tennis players that age out of tennis you can either let them go away because you don't have anything for them right. or keep their dues money coming in by creating pickleball courts on top of tennis courts. Sure. And then you also now can offer a pickleball membership. So now if you have kids with pickleball memberships at the club because you have the courts, now the clubs can grow their revenue. The members, your aging out tennis players are going to stay paying their dues at the club. So that's the way the sport should coexist at, at, at the club level and then at the recreational level, get kids involved in the, in the public, through the public park systems. You know, it's interesting in, in some of the projects that we've been doing in, in our, our youth team championships program, we're finding that facility operators, whether they're tennis with some pickleball or the pickleball only camps, they're all finding that they've got a dead time yep. on their court utilization yep. late in the afternoons before their evening activity that looks like a perfect time to slot youth programs in after school and, and utilize their courts and, uh, and get, uh, get more players going. And th this is where I completely disagree with the pickleball militants. I call them the militants. And, and that is that it's, it's, to me, it's perfectly okay to paint lines on a tennis court and put up a portable net. Yeah. At my club, that's what we do. We, we have drop-ins four nights a week, put up the portable nets, everybody's perfectly happy. There are those that say they won't play with portable nets. Well, do it. At, we should be painting lines at high schools on those unused tennis courts and getting kids out there with portable nets, with the lines painted on the courts. That's how we're going to make it happen. We can't say, oh, no, this is too good. If that's what people want to do, then let them go that way and do that. But don't let that stop yeah. exposing the sport to people just because you're using a portable net. I'll tell you, Ian, I, I, I've been around this game so long. I was five years of playing pickleball before I ever played on 
a non-portable net. Yeah, I'd and it was just what you do. It's just no big deal. It's just play it, enjoy the game, have fun with it. I don't notice the difference. Yeah, yeah. To tell you the truth, I mean, and there shouldn't be a difference. I mean, it, there's no, there's no reason to to be that way. I've played on tennis courts all over the world. Some are good, some are bad. I was playing tennis. Who cares? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I've got to imagine when you talk about a youth pickleball camp with decent instructors a lot can be done for a kid in a very short period of time. Absolutely, and that's why, as I said, our goal is to just continue searching for the good pros that know how to teach pickleball and that they can have a great experience, provide a great experience for the people that go to camp sure. so that they'll come back. And so let's, let's hit on two things right now. Where should the pros that are watching this that say, I'd be interested in helping, how do they get in touch with you? They should reach out to me or Wendy Spiz, who runs our pickleball division at U.S. Sports Camps, and they should feel free to reach out to us anytime. Happy to talk to any coach anytime who's got access to a facility, who knows how to teach pickleball, and we'll, create, we'll put them in business. We, our job is to create a revenue stream for the coaches. The coach's job is to run a great camp. And this is nationwide? Nationwide. Very cool. Yep. Very cool indeed. And we're in Canada as well. So it's, this is a North American um, effort. We have Sports Camps Canada up north where we run Nike pickleball camps in Canada. Yep. I see Kate over there. That's, <laughs> that's how I met Kate. <laughs> Very nice. Yep. Very nice. Well, so now with your adult camps that you have been doing to date, describe those a little bit. What's the experience that somebody has when they come to your camp? So, so typically it's a two to three day experience. Usually it's over the weekends and they're at you know, various properties, everything from, from public courts to private country clubs that have great facilities, but it's a two to, two to three day experience at the moment. Um, I think we'll let the market tell us what people want if they want to go for a week. Um, we've looked into sort of the international stuff. I don't think that's where we want to go yet. I think what we want to do is build the base. You know, our goal is sort of slow managed growth with good people and mm -hmm. good facilities and good experiences. And that's most important right now. So if we grow inc incrementally and, and just, you know, keep our eye on the ball and keep, you know, providing those, those opportunities for people to play and have fun, and, and want to come back and do it again. For our Nike pickleball camps, that's our goal. Sure, sure. Do you think it's conceivable from what you see in the sport of pickleball today that a boletary style program could be a value in pickleball? I think it is. And I think, again, that comes from, I think it's going to be primarily adults until you see it in high school and then until you see it in college. Yeah. Because um, the college scholarship model is probably most of why kids went to Boletari's. You know, whether they were going there to, the international kids, obviously it's a different system, but the American kids that, that were there, they were there probably because they wanted to get a college scholarship. So for kids in a model like that, we, it, it's gotta happen after there's, there's a presence in high school. For the adults, I can see it as a sort of um, destination experience. Sure. You know, find a great resort property where people can stay on the property. They can have experiences on the property. Um, there's so many things you could do. You can get creative with, with what you do. If people are there for a week and you go to a place like Orlando, where there's multiple different activities that can happen, 
you know, in the evenings or, you know, afternoons. Very much the, just the basic camp model. At all our U.S. sports camps that are overnight camps, you know, part of how you structure the day is you, you work activities into those days. Mm -hmm. And with adults, if you, again, if it's an experiential type opportunity, it depends on where you go. And if you go to the right places, you can really create a fun um, experience for people. You know, it's interesting, and I love talking about youth and how we're going to develop this thing. There's a interesting thing has just happened in Arizona. I live in Arizona. I'm working on a couple of projects there that involve some of the different cities and municipalities. And a parks and uh, a director for a large city in, in the greater Phoenix area said he was contacted by the state's education system asking every major park or, or every city in, in, uh, in the greater Phoenix Valley to begin adding pickleball yep. courts for their middle school and yep. high school yep. because they're planning on making it a significant part of their uh, academic or their uh, uh, phys ed rollout. And, and that's the type of thing that the, the Pickleball Industry Council should lack, latch on to and, and, and take that model and export it to other cities because obviously those people in Phoenix have realized that if you want to get kids active and you want to get kids moving and you want to get them away from their phones and away from the games and, yeah. and get them out, then pickleball is a great way to do it because they have the tennis courts yeah. at the schools. The, the cities in the parks have the tennis courts. All you got to do is paint the lines and get the portable nets. Right. And kids are moving and kids are playing and they're playing doubles and they're having fun and they're socializing and they're not staring at their phones. Yeah. And, and for schools to realize that that's fantastic news, but that's got to get exported right. across the country to other school districts and municipalities so that they see that model and they understand how it works because they don't have to build courts. And that's where I was going with the Padel thing. Okay. You know, everybody thinks that Padel is going to take over pickleball. But it's easy, easier said than done. You know, there's a big cost to building a Padel court. Right. And it's not like pickleball can go on a tennis court right. that already exists. The money's already been spent. If you're going to build Padel courts, that's new money. That's, I, where's that going to come from? Right. I, I do think there's a market for the game, but I don't think it's going to take over pickleball. I had uh, uh, work with a couple of people who are involved in the international side of pickleball and JWA, the pro, I was having a conversation with him about what's happening as far as what, what he's aware of in Europe. He told me exactly what you just said. He said, I think people have false expectations of how dominant Padel can be because it's just too expensive yeah. to be broad stream. It's still a country club experience. It's a club well, experience. Well, it, it started in the south of France and it started in Spain. Yeah. And they built new courts. Yeah. Okay. So there's a big difference. I was just at the NCAAs at the USTA National Center in Orlando and they've got, they've got Padel courts. But what was going on and what I saw while I was there was the teams that lost out of the tournament went over and just tried Padel because the courts were there. Yeah. So again, they had to build those courts. Yep. And it's just, I don't, I, don't see, I don't see cities, I don't see parks and rec, I don't see high schools building Padel courts. I, ah. I see them realizing, to your point, what's happening in Phoenix, I see them realizing there's an opportunity there to either build new courts or take existing tennis courts 
and paint the lines and bring out the portable nets. Yeah, and we see, I'm from, I spent most of my life in the upper Midwest and, and platform tennis is a big thing out yes. there because it's played outdoors in the winter, yep. but it's a country club sport. Yep. And the rare place that you get a chance to, to, to play uh, platform tennis, if you're not a country club member, is it's a rare thing. Yep. And so all of these, yeah, when I came into pickleball from a lifetime in the sports industry, I saw what you're seeing is the, the ability to multi-line and convert the cost of access for players is really modest. Well, tennis went through this, the, tennis went through the lack of courts back in, when, the, when the boom was going on and the courts got built. The courts are there. Right. The courts are there, and but you see the new clubs. Lifetime Fitness, for example, is building pickleball courts at all the new clubs, and they're they're building courts at, at uh, some of the older facilities. Yeah. And I think you guys are working that Midwest high school program is going on. Right. I, uh, that I think that Kate told me about, and I think that's fantastic. And I think that you see an organization like Lifetime that has a vision. They're the largest tennis court builder in the country. Yeah, and so now pickleball. They can be the largest pickleball court yeah. builder in the country as well. But the fact that those high school state championships are being played at those facilities will inspire those kids to want to keep playing. Right. Yeah. Because now you can win a state championship for your school. Right. So you know because you you don't play football, basketball, or baseball, and you, that those kids may feel like they don't have school spirit. But if they can play pickleball. It gives them the school spirit. I said the same thing about esports, that people, you know, there are those kids that go to high school and junior high school that just don't participate in sports, but they play esports. So what's wrong with having high school and junior high school esports? We run esports camps. Oh, really? And I didn't know that. And I think it's, you know, whether say what you want about video games, but there are those kids that that's what they do. Right. And they may go to a high school and they may feel left out because they don't play the sports where the school spirit exists. But if I'm playing for a high school esports team against another high school, now I have a reason to cheer for my high school. Sure. Because I feel like I'm a part of something. You know, I, I uh, raised three kids in high performance sports. Uh, they were all, you know, good travel team athletes and things in that order. And I remember seeing the, 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 the eyes of disappointment, a couple of my kids, but other kids as well, not making the, the bigs. Yep. And I've wondered if really what pickleball shouldn't be targeted as, as the sport like lacrosse was yep. 20 years ago, where a kid that didn't make the varsity football team because he just wasn't big enough, or yep. basketball, he just wasn't tall enough, but he was a superb athlete. And they could learn that game, and they could be a defenseman, they could do something, but they could have a varsity experience. Yep. And that's where I think we would really have an opportunity to... And that, that there's, there's no better model to, to get to than that experience for those kids. But you mentioned lacrosse. There's another sport that suffered from multiple pro tours. Oh, and, really? And they, I don't know where they are now, but I'm fairly certain I think they consolidated some of those. It sounds to me like we got a chairmanship in line for you coming up here. <laughs> I, yeah, I, no. All right. Yeah. No, but I, you make great points. Now, I do want to talk to you from your insane experience with having dealt with pro athletes in other more highly established pro sports. What do you think about what you see in the pro player 
experience and, and how it's being conducted currently? Well, I, I think, first of all, we're seeing a lot of tennis players and, 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 and players that, that were good tennis players either in college or on, on the pro tour move into pickleball. And I also think we're starting to see a change and we're going to continue to see a change in terms of how the game is played. And a lot of people might not be happy with the amount of power that may be coming into the game. And I think that's going to be an issue. But you can't avoid it because um, it's inevitable that, that the game is going to speed up a little bit the more people that come into the sport. And again, the more higher level tennis players that, that get involved in the sport. And I think the players that are, that, that are out there right now are doing a great job promoting the sport. I think everybody is, uh, I think everybody understands what's going on, probably. And I think that they realize that there's a boom going on. And I think everybody's taking advantage, just like any professional athlete would. You can't slight a professional athlete for seeking opportunities no. to, to make money because that's their job, just like the players on the live tour. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a business decision that they're making. They know their career has a short window, that their earning power is only going to last for so long, so they have to, take as, they have to provide for their families, and they have, to, they have priorities. So I think you know, in, in, in this sport, everybody's doing everything they can as professional athletes. But I think that also um, it's, it's gonna, it, it should change on television too because the best sports – that, that get the best rights fees and, and, and financially for, for the leagues and t are velocity sports. Yeah. Speed, distance, and time. Yeah. And I think that, t that pickleball needs to sort of think about how the show translates to the consumer on television. Um, I know dinks are a big part of the game, but, uh, you know, 30 dinks in a row is not speed, velocity, you know, speed, distance, or time. And sometimes I think you can lose consumers over that. I don't know the answer to that yet. Right. But it's just in my mind when I look at the telecast and I look at, you know, people, you have to hold people to the show to get the advertisers. The advertisers are what goes into the tour. Yeah. The, the more money you can get from advertising, the higher ratings you get, the higher rating, the more money you can get, and the more you can do with the show. Yeah, it's interesting, the exact example that you've offered on dinking and what is dinking. One of the things that I've loved about seeing a lot of the elite level tennis players coming into the game is the history now has been, they move up into the middle yep. pretty fast. Yep. But yep. breaking through to the top because the cat and mouse portion yep. and the, one of the things that as, as a lifetime competitive tennis player, one of the things I love about pickleball is the nuance and yeah. the subtlety and that there are, there are so many different tools. Um, and the other, the juniors that are going to be coming up, I think are going to also change the game because when we get the Dylan Frazier's that never played tennis in his yep. life, yep. that learn to play pickleball and they can learn it at six and seven. Yep. By the time they're Anna Lee Waters' age yep. or uh, Georgia Johnson's age of 16, they'll, they could have 10 years of pickleball under their belt. And that what's going to develop from them, I think, is going to be equally as interesting as what the power players bring in. Yeah, I d you know, don't get me wrong. I, I understand that dinking is part of the game. But w what I'm saying is that, um, and the cat and mouse part of it, I mean, it's, it's your, your analogy with tennis. You know, if you play doubles in tennis, 
you know, I was always taught that the team that gets the net first wins the point yeah. in, in doubles. So getting to the kitchen is critical. Right. Okay. And the cat and mouse part of it starts right there, which is basically a drop shot in tennis. Yeah. But I find myself all the time when I'm playing and I go to hit the drop shot in tennis and the ball lands in the net. I say to myself every time, it's like, God, I, I keep thinking I have strings. Yeah. And, I, and, and you don't. So, you, don't. you know, that's the part of it that you have to yeah. learn. But I, I just think that, that um, maybe there's a different way to shoot it. I mean, when I, when I was working with bowling and we went back on ESPN, one of the things I, I thought was really important was that we build a set that made the, the show. Because we, we were bowling on the, the night before they were bowling for money. A kid's birthday party was happening on those same lanes. Okay, so we, I went to a set designer at ESPN. I said, we need a set that is a combination of a small college basketball game and a prize fight where the fans are right on it watching it. And we put a camera in the pin deck so that, that you could see the balls hitting the pins. You got to think outside the box. Yeah, and yeah. there's, there's got to be, I, I under, I'm not saying change the game. I'm just saying, look how it's broadcast yeah. from the eye of the consumer who's sitting on the other side of the camera, and you want to keep them watching it. You want to keep them engaged in the sure. show. So there's, there's, you just got to think about it and, and come up with ways to do that. Yeah, it's been interesting over all of the all of the major uh, uh, tournament and pro events that I've been at, I've seen a number of of really interesting efforts made with net cameras where yep. they and. Yep. Uh, I was at a at a tournament where they had an overhead like an NFL stadium yep. cable, and being able to see that firefight that yep. the players is having. So I well, the I, things you can do with drones. I mean, you, you could float a drone over. You know, my son has a drone that, you know, he flies around on the beach. I mean, you could hang a drone over the over the court and just have the thing going up and down and zooming in and out. Yeah, there's there's a lot of different ways, and good producers and directors know how to do that. Yeah. Yeah. You just got to get the right people involved and let them bring some new ideas to the show. Yeah, absolutely. And on the on the the note of new ideas, given your background, what do you think pickleball? What what do you think would be the best thing for our sport, not only at the pro level, but the sport in general? Any thoughts or ideas? Well, I think I, I, again, I look at the pyramid. At the tip of the pyramid, you have the pros. And then in the middle of the pyramid, maybe you've got the amateur tour. And then at the bottom of the pyramid, you've got the recreational player that you want them to work their way up through the pyramid. So I think at the, at, at the, at the top of the pyramid, I, I think the pro game has got to consolidate and, and consolidate, most importantly, the message so that you've got you know, one tour where you're, you're focused on dimensionalizing those players the same players show up to play every week and so that the fans can engage with those players sure. and get to know those players and they're going to see them every week and they cheer for them and they want them to win. And then you have the amateur tour, as you said, which is the, the call it whatever you want, just like the Corn Ferry Tour in golf or minor league baseball, so that you're qualifying to get to the pro tour. And then you've got the recreational player where you've got recreational tournaments, you've got recreational opportunities, that's where the high school and the junior high school uh, participation comes in. And I, I think you just need a plan. And, and if, if the right plan can, as I said before, capture this lightning in a bottle and make sure that you keep it and make sure that the sport continues to grow. And I'll tell you, I, I, I find it so 
interesting that you describe that and, and the history of it having been done beneficially. I hope that those of you that are out there watching that make a difference in this sport, start thinking on those terms. How do we do that where it's in the best interest of everybody? Having been in the sports world for a long, long, long time, the growth, the size of the pie growing was always far more critical than any individual in it because the growing pie fed a lot of mouths. Yep. And I, I, I hope somebody bites in on what you're describing. So with Nike Tennis, my philosophy was always, if we make tennis fun and cool, we'll get our fair share of the pie. Yeah. We just have to make it an aspirational place for tennis players to want to engage via the athletes, via the product and, and, and via the, the advertising and, and how we message the sport out to the consumer. If we'll get our fair share of the pie if we do a good job at that. Tell you what, you and me, <laughs> let's grow this pie. Let's get, let's get Nike Pickleball Camps, the biggest camp business in the world. Very nice, very nice. Look up Nike Sports Camp. Look for things coming in your part of the world. Let's watch youth and let's see what we can all do to contribute to make that thing happen. Ian, it's been a pleasure. I've sure enjoyed this. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thank you.